This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Claire Dieterer, author of two memoirs, Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses, and Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning. Dieterer is a longtime contributor to the New York Times and also writes for The Atlantic, Harper's, The Nation, New York Magazine, and Salon, among others. Her memoir, Love and Trouble, focuses on a shift that took place in her emotional life when she turned 44. Suddenly, a sort of hunger and yearning take over, and Dieterer looks at her sexual longing, feelings of wildness, and heightened sensitivity in the present and her teenage past. We began by discussing the title, Love and Trouble. The title was really hard, um, and part of the reason it was hard was because the book changed so much over time. Um, when I first started writing the book, it was really, it was really intended as a kind of sexual coming of age story, and I don't really like coming of age memoirs, and yet I was writing one, uh, and eventually I realized that. The reason I was interested in this girl who was so troubled and messed up and hypersexual and all those things is because I was sort of becoming her again in my mid-40s. And then I realized that the book was not just so much about her, but it was about me now and me then. So there were many titles I worked through that were about basically wanting to have sex with boys a lot. Um, that I, you know, I must have cycled through 10 titles that were organized around the word boy. But then once it, the book opened up to considering both midlife and adolescence, it became something that was much more about this larger yearning and failure of connection. The two words love and trouble just kept coming up over and over in ever more complicated formulations until finally it was actually somebody at the publishing house who said, maybe it really is just love and trouble. And um, we all sort of went, oh, that is what it is. So it was hard to get there. You know, when you said you started off kind of wanting it to be sort of a sexual memoir, I'm wondering about your relationship to yourself in relationship to men. When I was in my early to mid 40s and I started to have some of the feelings I ended up talking about in the book where I really started to be experiencing this strong need for male approval and male sexual attention again, which I hadn't needed for a long time in the same way, um, but was very much my MO as a teenager as well. Um, It did really start me thinking about my relationship to men and what it was and what it had been. And to me, that's the heart of the book. I had a very brilliant friend and editor read the book when I was still trying to pull together the themes and figure out the through line. And she said, oh, well, you know, I hate to tell you, but the book is about, you know, your completely craven need for male attention, which was a painful thing to hear. And it just felt like, oh, the the tumblers fell. Everything just sort of clicked into place. And that seemed like the truest thing I could say and the hardest thing I could say. And so the book kind of limbs that starting from when I was a young brother worshiping little sister, and then I became a tomboy, and then I explore this idea that tomboys, more often than we acknowledge, sort of become sluts, because it's just another way of being close to boys. And then I sort of deal with this idea of how that works out in adulthood and how it works out for an artist or a writer who's moving through a male world. 
So one of the things that you did in this book is that I believe you were 44 and just the tears started rolling and the yearning (laughs) started rolling and the longing started happening. And you got out all these journals that you had written when you were younger and in your teenage years and you were sort of comparing your feelings and going back and forth. What do you think the trigger was for that? Because it sounds like you were going along happily. I think I was going along happily. That's an interesting way to put it. But there was this whole part of myself that I had sort of put in a box and put away. You know, I, there was, I was sort of this very bad, naughty, disruptive, risk-taking, troubled teenager, early adolescent. And then I became a writer. I became a mom. I became a wife. um, And I sort of stayed on the straight and narrow as defined in a very groovy, organic, you know, specific kind of self-realization as a worker and a mom. Um, I didn't know what I was doing as a kid. I was desperately lost. And as an adult, I sort of found my way and I just wanted it to disappear. I wanted that girl to disappear. I wanted to pretend she had never existed. So I was going along happily, but it was as though I had this phantom limb of fuck upness right? That I was just ignoring or, you know, there was this whole part of me that I was pretending didn't exist. And then the same feelings started coming back in my early 40s. And without sort of acknowledging that that was what was going on, I became fascinated by the diaries and the letters and the photos that I found in my basement. It was, it was as though I were sort of Uh, sighting myself across the years, you know, at the horizon and sort of saluting this former self, but also sort of terrified of her. You know, it was very painful to look at the diaries. It was also really painful just to be in the world when I was in my mid-40s. I was, as you said, crying all the time. I was in this intense discomfort. Um, I had this quality of either being in pain or feeling numb. I described it as being a woman in a bear suit, you know, just sort of this weird, unwieldy, um, dissociation that I would have. And um, I do think that there was something in my younger self that I was trying to access. And I had a really wise friend who kept asking me, you have a lot. She kept saying, you have a lot you could tell your younger self. You know, you're thinking about this younger self all the time and you're writing about it. She knew what my project was with my book. But she said, what is it that that younger self could say to you? And that idea that the fuck up or the former self or the bad kid could have something to teach this accomplished, hardworking woman that I had become was very upsetting to me. And yet it was also very, very true. And I think the things that she had to teach me and that I I was finding in the diary or even in the photos or even in listening to old music, all of these things are ways of accessing more immediate emotion. And um, so it was this this feeling, this idea that, you know, we get to feel things, we ought to feel things, even if it hurts. And I don't think that that's something that as good parents or workers or partners, we're super comfortable with. You know, we teach our children to access their feelings and we talk to them about being emotionally present, but but. When we're good, strong, stable parents, we often sort of put those feelings aside for our own part. And um, and yet we're supposed to be full people as well. So I think feeling is important and that sometimes <laughs> feeling is ridiculous and sentimental and melancholic and over the top and and that it's okay to access that part of yourself. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Claire Dieterer, author of the memoir, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning. Your longing as a teenager, probably a lot of the time, and I could be wrong, but from reading it, yes, you had many boyfriends and you went through boys, but you didn't like possess one. But as a 44-year-old, you were married. And so how did you navigate those feelings where... Your teenage self probably would have thought, had you gotten married, you would have gotten everything you wanted. And then you're 44 years old, and there's this guy right next to you who's devoted his life to you, and you've devoted your life to him. But that wasn't what the object of the longing was. How did you navigate that in your daily life? The longing itself can't attach itself to what you already have. And not to be super pretentious, but Lacan has this idea. I'm going to use an American pronunciation because I am not a French speaker, but he talks about the petite object A, the little object A. And it's this idea of something that's outside yourself that you want that you can never get. And I think that this is a really familiar idea to all of us. Um, And it's certainly an idea that lots of philosophy has dealt with. And for me, what was important was the not being able to have it. So by definition, my husband couldn't serve this need I had to just yearn. You know, that's what it was about. And um, how did I navigate that? You know, poorly, badly. There was the crying. There was this quality of this idea that my husband and I were moving along next to each other and sort of headed in the same direction that I describe in the book, this sort of we're trundling along and let's hope we end up in the same place. Um, There was a quality of faith that we would keep going and that I would come out of this and we'd still be next to each other. That's the best way I can describe it. There was a new distance in our marriage. Marriage almost doesn't bear thinking about You know, it's so massive. It's oceanic. It's very hard to consider what a marriage is. I'm coming up on my 20th year. And marriages go through these seasons that are just where you're less together and more together. So the yearning, you know, it definitely set us apart. But my husband just let it happen, which I have a huge respect for. And probably ultimately it'll make us be closer and longer lasting because of that. One of the things that you wrote about was trying to balance this need for a man with with your feminism. And you kind of wrote about it, about sort of wanting to be dominated in a way. So you wrote on page 2222, sort of the idea of being dominated is of interest to you, but how that matches up with feminism. Yeah, it's something I'm very hesitant to talk about because I feel like it took me, what page did you say that line was on? 222. So it took me 222 pages to explain why I think that's true. I mean, you've really hit upon the crucial idea of the book, which is a person who loves sex, who wants sex, but also wants to be made to do it and also knows that's wrong on a certain level. Um, The sort of what I'm looking at is the the roots of how you end up like that. How does a sexuality grow? If your first sexual experience is coercive, as mine was, um, did that make me the person I am sexually, right? Do I, I was made to, you know, experience this, I was, I mean, it was a minor molestation, but I was made to to be touched. I was forced to be touched by someone else the first time I ever had a sexual experience. 
did that make me into the sexual person I am? I don't know. What I do know is that both of those things are true. You know, that I was molested and that I became a person who does want to be dominated and does want to be in some play acting form made to do it. At the same time, I have been sexually assaulted many times, as many women have been, and I understand the difference between the fantasy of being made to do it and the fact that I have been, you know, assaulted. And um, so all of this is intention in the book and in myself. And I feel like writing that and talking about that was the really great thing I was able to do in this book. Like the the that was the ambition of this book was to say these hard things, that I have these desires and that they exist within the context of my feminism. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Claire Dieterer, author of the memoir, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning. Another thing you talk about in the book, this is much earlier, and you are referring to the time when you entered sexual and romantic life. You write, I learned I wanted more. I learned that I operated at a higher pitch sexually and romantically than other people. I wanted harder than other people. How do you deal with that want now, and has it diminished? I would say it's diminished, yes. I would definitely say it's diminished. Um, I think that... You know, on the second page of the book, I describe this period as a season in hell, which always makes me laugh. All the references to hell in the book make me laugh, um, partly because they're so apt. Uh, but I do feel like it's sort of, um, it's lessened. I think it, you know, I, I conclude the book with the image of a spiral, and I think these things come and go. You pass through phases. Um but also, you know, we don't get everything we want. We just don't. And I think that that's what, you know, this we're, we're talking around an idea when we're talking about me in the last few years of my life. And the idea that we're talking around has an awful name. And the awful name is midlife crisis, which is so reductive and lame and embarrassing. But all it really is, is a recognition of letting go of options. You know, that's what it is. As you're getting older, you're seeing all the things you're not going to do. You have this sense of the end on the horizon, and it creates a feeling of urgency, but also an incredibly mournful feeling of despair and loss that, you know, sometimes makes you make bad decisions, as this character in this book does. Um but it's really a deep knowing that you're not going to get everything you want in this life. And that's an easy sentence to utter. It's, it's a more difficult idea to live with. You just mentioned the ending and you, the ending is you and your best friend, Victoria, who you call Vic, you end up going to see spiral jetty outside of Salt Lake city. And you talk about Victoria throughout the book, but she's never like the center point of any of the chapters. And I'm curious about your decision to end the book on female friendship. That's a great question that nobody else has asked. One of the things that is mysterious and beautiful to me about the last few years of my life and about what happens to this character in this book is that 
that she's not alone, that she has this friend who's sort of always there with her. And in the book, I, uh, I reference Dante and Virgil um, and the Inferno, um, the idea of these two people moving through this world together. You know, I talk about me and Vic being in Los Angeles, like Dante and Virgil. And I think that this idea that there's a companion with you on your journey, um, for me, it was such an important part of my experience of, of the despair I went through. So I talked earlier about this idea that there were that I'm writing so someone else feels alone. And for me, the only way I made it was because I knew someone else who was going through something similar. I, I, I don't know how I would have done it otherwise. And I've always been someone, somebody in some review, I haven't read a lot. I don't read a lot of the reviews, but somebody in some review somewhere talked about how I'm like a, you know, a male identified cool girl. And that's not at all what this book is about. You know, this is a book about friendship in many ways. And um, friendship has always Female friendship's always been really important to me, but I think what you see happening to this character in this book is that it becomes absolutely vital. It's keeping her alive. It's keeping her mentally together. It's making it so she can go on in her marriage and be a good mother to her children because there's this other person who understands her. And it's not a huge part of the book, but it's an emotionally really important part of the book. And I think the reason that I ended on it is because it's the truth. The truth is that the future for me, uh, as my children get older, because they're 18 and 15 now, um, and as marriage and family changes because of that, is that my marriage will continue to open up and I will continue to be really dependent on friendship. And that will be a way that I can go out and be in the world that will make my marriage and my life bigger. That's what the last chapter is about, is this person finding a way to have something larger, some larger connection, some reward for her yearning that's workable, right? I mean, that's, and I feel like that's what this age is. I see, and that's actually a really cheerful way to end, even though the book doesn't acknowledge it, is I see myself and Vic and other people who have been through this really dark experience of midlife emerging and determinedly choosing to develop friendships, to develop interests. You know, I talk about how it's all about how do you keep going? Just keep going. That's what you got to just, it's partly an, an issue for an artist too. I think that the late 40s and 50s are can be a real crisis time for someone who's a writer or an artist. How do you keep going? And um, you have to make these sort of decisions to be interested in the world, which sounds kind of depressing when I describe it, but I think it's true. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Claire Dieterer, author of the memoir, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I've just been rereading Possession by A.S. Byatt, which I read when it came out, and um, which was in 1990. And A.S. Byatt was really important to me in the late 80s, early 90s, as was her sister Margaret Drabble, um, because of this way they have of letting history and... Um, social movements flow into emotional life 
I think that for me as a writer, that's endlessly fascinating to me. So I'm reading this old copy of the book I have from when it came out, maybe late 80s, and um, I found this passage that I marked when I was when I was a much when I was in my in my 20s and trying to make myself into a writer. I think it's really interesting. So it's about uh, two scholars, two contemporary scholars. And they're studying two Victorian poets. And they discover this treasure trove of letters from these earlier poets. And so this is a passage from a a Victorian female poetess who's fictional. She's invented by A.S. Byatt. And she says, My recent reading has caused me, for some reason, to remember myself as I was when a young girl, reading high romances and seeing myself simultaneously as the object of all night's devotion, an unspotted Guinevere, and as the author of the tale. I wanted to be a poet and a poem, and now am neither, but the mistress of a very small household." And then there's kind of a break, and then she goes on. I hit on something, I believe, when I wrote that I meant to be a poet and a poem. It may be that this is the desire of all reading women, as opposed to reading men, who wish to be poets and heroes, but might see the indicting of poetry in our peaceful age as a sufficiently heroic act. No one wishes a man to be a poem. So that idea of wanting to be both the object of poetry and the maker of poetry goes to something really deep inside of me. You know, this wanting to be the love object and the maker of the love poem. um, It's very much the spirit of this book I just wrote, where the person sort of wants to be adored, but also wants to have total agency in the world and figure out how to be an artist herself. And it was a really amazing moment of recognition when I was rereading this book, and I saw that I had marked it when I was in my early 20s. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, I think that there's actually, um, this book was really, um, underwent a lot of changes. It started out being this sort of really earnest, lyrical, resonant, coming-of-age sexual memoir. And I don't like any of those things. Um, I like humor. I like books that are really funny. To me, humor is probably the highest good in writing. Um, And I like a lot of knowingness. And I was writing this book and it just, and coming of age books are really troublesome because they're sort of, well, how does the character change and what's their role in their own changing? so I, I struggled with writing this coming-of-age memoir for probably two or three years. I worked on it for a long time, and it was just inert and not funny. And um, I was working on it and working on it. And then, as I said, I sort of started to realize, like, oh, it's also about me as this grown woman, and these two periods are in dynamic. And I wrote like that for a long time. I sort of tried to write a very traditional, narrative, scene-driven memoir about my young self and my middle-aged self. And it still was rather inert in terms of the writing. And as I was doing that, I was sneaking off to write these forms. So like I was sneaking off to write 
it was almost like I was having these affairs with these forms, you know, so I mentioned the case study form or the map that's in the book, or there's a couple, you know, there's a how-to manual for having sex with your husband, or there's chapters in first person or um, second person, and there's all kinds of formal play in the book. And I just sort of was, I wasn't going to use them. They were just things I was doing to amuse myself and to kind of keep the project alive. And I was talking to Victoria, my best friend, and she's an artist. And like many artists, she's sort of really good at looking at what you have rather than what you're supposed to have. And she said, oh, you already wrote the book. It's all those forms you've been messing around with. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And she said, yeah. She said, have you ever read Visit from the Goon Squad? It's like Visit from the Goon Squad. And I said, you're insane. No, you can't write a memoir like Visit from the Goon Squad. And she said, you already did. And I was like, you know, you're a dumb artist. Forget it. That'll never work. And then I went and looked at Visit from the Goon Squad, and I realized that I had sort of already written the book. And then there followed this really fun period where a lot of the writing I'd been doing about coming of age, which was really, you know, self-pitying and sort of maudlin, <laughs> started to get slotted into these different forms. And I had this really fun experience of seeing the material come alive within when it was reset in a new context. And uh, so this book, there's material that I started writing, you know, six years ago, where it first started out as a kind of heartfelt little scene I wrote. And then I tried to make it into sort of this beautiful, gorgeous Mary Carr, Tobias Wolf, sustained scene writing, classical memoir. And that still didn't work. And then I plugged it into these almost poppy forms. And suddenly I liked what I had. So I'm just going to read a very, very brief passage from the book that had been super, what I would technically term as super duper maudlin about when I was in college and I was real slutty and um, I was really, really sad. I hated college. Um, and I had written, I would say I probably wrote 40,000 words on my college experience that was just the saddest coming of age stuff. And then I shrunk it down and I turned it into a primer that I called A is for acid. And it was an Oberlin primer where it was like A is for acid, B is for butt rock, C is for chlamydia. And in each of those, there'd be a little section about some aspect of college. And this one little section is called D is for David. My brother David, whom I worshipped, came to visit me at Oberlin. My hero slash brother and I ate lunch and then went out to the quad and sat down on a, on a bench. I mean to say, what? Who even sits on benches? Had I ever sat on a bench before? Anyway, we did. We sat on a bench. And were we ever sorry we did? Because someone had scrawled on that very bench for a good time call Claire Dieterer and then my campus phone number. I turned red and looked guiltily at Dave, who seemed horrified yet unsurprised. I wondered who wrote it. There had been, there were a lot of them. Derek, a frustrated post-disco tussle, which came to a mortifyingly quick ending. Graham, a blowjob under shrubbery. Paul, an afternoon in my empty room. And more, more, more was my watchword. More was how I was navigating Oberlin. My brother went into the dorm and somehow acquired a rag and tried to scrub it off. We never spoke of it again. Do you want to say anything the else about it? 
just that the form, the slotting it into the alphabet form took what had been mortifying and painful and almost impossible to write about without just this insane show of self-hatred. And I was able to just say it and almost, and find some kind of oblique humor in it. That was very freeing for me, the idea of form. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Claire Dieterer, author of the memoir, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning. Where do you write? I have a little hut in my backyard, and I mostly write there. It's just like a little shack, and I go out there and force myself to do it. But when things are bad, I get in my bed and I write there. You know, it's, um, it's whatever it takes to get it done. I'm a very old-fashioned writer in that I come from journalism and I come from a place where word counts are very important. And so for me, if it's not whatever word count I've set for that day, whether that's 600 or 1,000 words, the day's a disaster. And so I'll sort of do whatever it takes to get that done. Sit in my hut, sit in my bed, you know, not have lunch, whatever. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? It's it's how I make my living. You know, I have to buy the kids shoes and, you know, I really have to write a lot. And of course, it's super portable. Um, so I, I, I don't. It's very hard for me to get away from it. I have to, you know, it has to involve somebody has to wrest my laptop from me and, and send me away on an airplane or in a car. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, I used to show my work to my husband always first, but writing this book, I didn't, and it was a huge point of contention. Um, so much of the book was about him, and it was about feelings I was having outside our marriage, and I knew that the um, the success of the book artistically depended on me being honest about that, and I knew if I showed it to my husband, there was going to be a process involved, so... I didn't, and um, I'm feeling a little unmoored about that. I'm working on a new book, and I'm I'm trying to get back in the groove of just working with him because I really like it. But aside from that, Victoria, my best friend, I show her everything. And I think that I have one other friend, another writer, Suzanne Morrison, um, and Joanna Rakoff's an early reader of mine. Uh, but I think you only need a couple. I think you just need two people, one or two people, and those people need to be honest. But I will second what many other before me have said, choose someone smart, but choose someone kind. You just need to be helped over, the, you know, have pick somebody who's going to literally carry, not literally, but who will figuratively pick you up and carry you over the finish line. That's what you're looking for in an early reader, your earliest reader. How have you dealt with rejection? Poorly. It's a short answer. I uh, was a freelance journalist for a long time, so I have a lot of experience with hustle and with rejection. I'm very, I had thought I was very comfortable with it. Um, this book in its very earliest form, in its lyrical, lovely, resonant, maudlin, boring, coming-of-age memoir form, went to the publisher of my first book, Farrar Strauss, and they passed on it, and that was devastating for me. But... Ultimately, it helped me regroup and think about how the book could be better. And it made me, I think it made me focus more on not some exterior idea of what makes a good or a literary memoir, 
but what makes a memoir feel alive and vital and important to me specifically. And then I set about making that happen. And the thing I built is this weird Frankenstein's monster. I mean, this is a sort of odd book. And I just put everything into it. And by the time I was done and we went to sell it, I loved what I had made. And I felt like I felt very excited about it and I felt like it was saying something difficult and I honestly didn't give a shit who published it as long as it got published and maybe a few people read it. So in that sense, the rejection by my original publisher freed me from a kind of professionalism where I was trying to be good and do it right and please everybody. Once that rejection came in, I began to really please myself and I underwent a really important growing up as an artist. And it's probably the biggest thing that's ever happened to me as a writer. This, this change from thinking about what the editor wants to pleasing myself. You know, if you're a freelance writer for 20 years, that's a very hard thing to claim. And what is your favorite word? Oh, crap. I was supposed to think of this and I didn't. Um, well, I have a secret project I'm working on aside from my new book I'm working on. I have a, I have like a, another very like inchoate fiction project that I'm sort of in love with and it deals with the idea of frost. So I'm just going to say the word frost for right now. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Claire Dieterer author of the memoir, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.